Good morning. Uh, let me be the first to say, I don't think it's too early, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Tis the season, right? It's a, uh, How many of us have been able to either enjoy Dickens on Main or the Christmas parade last night? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. We have um, a plethora. Do you even know what a plethora is? Um, we have a plethora of opportunities in this uh, little hallmark town of ours to fully immerse ourselves in the Christmas season. And, and it's a magical season, isn't it, right? The, the, the lights, the trees, the, uh, the gifts, the, 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 the wonder in our, in our kids and our grandkids' eyes, right, as they, as they see all the houses decorated with lights, as they see the, the Christmas tree, as they see the, the frozen wonderlands, right? It's a, it's a super magical season. But if we're, if we're completely honest, um, um, it's, it's also a season where really what we do is we try to press the pause button on reality, right? We create this idealized environment where, where we only focus on the good things of life. And, and that's good, right? We, it's important to give thanks and focus on, on, on the good things uh, of life. But, but positioned at the end of the year... Uh, Christmas is not only a season for uh, joy, it's not only a season for giving and generosity, it's not only uh, a season to be around family, uh, it's a season for hope, right? As we look forward to the next year, it's a, it, it, it's a season of hope. Some, some of us hope that our health uh, will be better in the next year. Some of us hope that our finances or our life circumstances will be markedly better in the new year. Uh, some of us hope that God will strengthen or, or maybe even save our businesses in the new year. Some of us hope uh, that God will turn our marriages around in the new year. Some of us hope that our children will turn to the Lord in the new year. So it's a, it's a season of hope, right? Whether big or small, um, it's a season of hope. And, and, and really, there's this, this unavoidable uh, darkness um, in which we live as well, right? Uh, we, we hope for peace in Israel and in Gaza uh, and in Ukraine, lest we forget about Ukraine. Uh, we hope for a stable economy in America. We hope for repentance for our nation and for our world that is sinking deeper and deeper into lawlessness and greed and idolatry and, and sexual sin. And, and our text for today outlines uh, the plan for how the God of the universe would inject hope into an otherwise hopeless world. Our, our passage this morning is one of the most important prophecies in Scripture. It would change everything. This is the, this is the moment where, where everything changes, not only for the Israelites, but for all of mankind. This is, this is the point in scripture where God would say, I have a plan and it doesn't look anything like you thought it was going to look. So let's pray and we'll dig in to God's word. Generally, Father God, we, we again, we thank you for the morning and your intimacy and your closeness. We thank you that you are near to us and that you are working in us and changing us to be more like you, Father. Um, Lord, we realize this morning through your word the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and how we are called to live our lives differently based on the hope uh, that is not only now, 
uh, but that it, is, that it is in the future, the hope that we have for all of eternity, living and dwelling in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. But we're going to start um, just a little bit before in Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, uh, Isaiah prophesies the impending uh, uh, invasion of the Assyrians that would lead to the captivity of Israel. He was prophesying judgment over the people of Israel. We, we all know all of the, the, the trials and tribulations and, and circuitous routes and, and stories and grumbling and groaning from the story of the Israelites, right? And, and, and we get to this point in Israel's history where they have basically forsaken the Lord. They have turned to idolatry. They, they have turned to their own ways. They no longer walk in obedience to the Lord. And the Lord says to Isaiah, I, in chapter 6, I need somebody to tell these people that I'm going to judge them and that they're going to be conquered by their enemies and led away into captivity. And you know what Isaiah says to that? He says, here am I, Lord, send me. But he also says, woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, right? He, he, he knew that in and of himself, he wasn't up to that task. He, he cried out, holy, holy, holy are you, God. Uh, if I'm going to do this work, you're going to have to sanctify my mouth. You're going to have to sanctify my lips. How many of us in the audience need our mouths sanctified this morning? But, but, but the point is, is that he was obedient to God's call. And, and, and in chapter 8, he was prophesying this impending invasion. The Assyrians would conquer uh, the Israelites, right? And so, so imagine if you were around, we don't do this often, imagine if you were around in the time that Isaiah was actually prophesying this, if he was pinning it or, or reading the prophecy aloud, right? If you, were, if you were a common man living in Judah at the time and you're hearing this prophecy, this is bad news. This, 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 this is the, that's the understatement of the year, right? This is the end. And worse yet, God was declaring it would happen and was permitting it to happen because of your disobedience and your idolatry. This was certainly a scenario where there was no hope on the horizon. In fact, Israel, I mean, Isaiah would describe this captivity and the future reality that awaited a conquered and captive Israel with these words in verse 22. It says, um, uh, uh, speaking of the Israelites, it says, and they will look, this, this is God's people. This is God's people, okay? And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. When I read this, I imagine a scene towards the end of the movie where, where we think the, the antagonist has won, where we think that the bad guy has prevailed, right? For, for, forgive me for, for mentioning Disney, but at, at the end of Frozen, right, uh, Anna, Anna has been touched by Elsa. Her heart is cold and her heart is freezing and she's growing colder and colder and, and, and Elsa's got to save her. And, and Elsa finally has a change of heart and turns around and is rushing to Anna and Anna's frozen. It's too late. She's completely frozen over. And for a moment, you think all hope is lost, right? And then we know, of course, that she comes back to life and that love's true kiss, yada, 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 right? 
This, this is that moment in Israel's history where all seems lost. This is the moment where, where it seems like the screen is fading to black and all of the promises of God are, are very far away at this point. It, it seems like the promises uh, given to Abraham and passed down to Isaac and Jacob, it seems like those things are never going to happen. The, 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 the promise to David to establish his throne forever and that the line of Messiah would come through David, this is over. God, God, is God giving up on his people? He's handing them over to their enemies. This is a completely hopeless situation. They've been thrust into darkness by the God that once supernaturally took them out of Egypt and brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey. Is the story over? Well, then we get to what we call chapter 9. Do you have that, up, Hattie? Go to the first verse. Listen to this, this declaration of hope. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. I will not abandon my people. I will not leave my people without hope. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why, church? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is good news, church. Hope has come. Hope is on the horizon, church. And hope will come in the form of the sovereign rule and reign of a king in his kingdom. As we step through this passage, we're going to see specific ways this king uh, will bring hope into situations of hopelessness. We will see the benefits of living in the kingdom of the promised king. So let's go back to verse 2. It says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So, so the first benefit of the king coming with his kingdom is that it will move us from darkness to light. And where do we see this in the New Testament? We see this in Colossians chapter 1. Do you have that, Hattie? Colossians 1. After all those Isaiah verses, do you see Colossians? It's okay. Y'all know where Colossians is. Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14 says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Oh, got it. 
Y'all give it up for my daughter, Hattie. He moves us from darkness to light. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has, he has pulled us out of the pit of despair, the pit of our own sin that we could not save ourselves from. He has pulled us out of that darkness and into the light of his countenance. We now see his face, and it brings light and glory and joy. This is the benefit of the king coming with his kingdom. The next thing we see is in verse 3, the, 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 the king coming with his kingdom brings us from anguish to joy. In verse 3, he says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This was an agrarian society, right? Planting and harvesting, the, the, the seasonal cycles were everything. Life depended on it. And the most joyous time was when you could reap the harvest of everything that you sowed. And it's that level of joy when all the fruits of your labor come in and, you're, and you get to celebrate and you get to feast and you get to die until your heart's consent. It's that level of joy that is going to come when this child is born, when this king is born, and when he brings us his kingdom. Where do we see this in the New Testament? We see this in Romans 14, verse 17. It says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So God has given us a king. He has given us a kingdom, uh, one that is built and established in justice and righteousness, but also filled with peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen. The next thing we see that the king brings with his kingdom is that he moves his people from bondage to freedom. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. What is the day of Midian? The day of Midian is, is, where, is where God supernaturally saves the Israelites through Gideon. He, he, and, and guess what they don't have in their hands? They don't have swords. They have pots with torches and they have trumpets. And, and with that level of faith, they go out against the enemies of God and they drop the jars and they blow the trumpets and God supernaturally saves them. So the day of Midian was a huge thing in Israel, right? And, and, and this idea of moving his people from bondage to freedom, we see it in the Exodus story, right? This is what the king coming with his kingdom is all about. He's setting his people free. He's redeeming and rescuing his people so that they can live and dwell and move and act in his kingdom for his glory. Where do we see this in the New Testament? We see this in Galatians 5 verse 1 says, it is for our freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You know, I see in, 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 in uh, pastoral ministry and pastoral counseling a lot, I see the fact that there are, there are Christians, people who have called upon Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and, and through, through whatever circumstances in life and whatever decisions that they've made, 
They've actually put back on the shackles of sin. They've put back on the weight of the oppressor. And this is just exactly opposite for how we're called to live as Christ followers and in following the king and his kingdom. He is a God of freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We are called to walk in that freedom. If, if you feel bondage of any kind, you need deliverance from that bondage. And that deliverance is available today. That is the God that we serve. Amen? The next thing we see that the king brings with his kingdom is that he moves things from war to peace. Verse 5, it says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The, the soldier, you won't need your tramping boots anymore. The garments you've already soiled in blood, instead of staining another white shirt, so you put that on before you go to battle, we'll just use that for kindling. You won't need that anymore. Isaiah 2 verse 4 says this about the end of days. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine the day, church? Neither shall they learn war anymore. That's the kingdom that I want to live in. That's the kingdom that awaits us. That's the kingdom, listen, that you and I are called to be a part of and build today. God is not on a solo mission. God is not going to do it all for us. He has called us to, to be obedient in helping him build his kingdom. But he's not just called us, he's invited us. It's a privilege and a joy and an honor, right? If you have been used by the Lord to make an eternal difference in somebody's life, you know that that's more addicting than any drug could ever be. And that's what God has called us to. So what's the source of this hope? The source of this hope is, of course, verse 6, and it's the reason we celebrate the Christmas season. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, he's a counselor, and he's going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be your God, and he's going to be mighty. In every area of your life, he will be strong. He's going to be your father. And he's not going to be a temporal father He's not going to be a father that lacks affection and love and doesn't know what to say. He's going to be an everlasting father forever. Whatever experience you had with your father, you don't have to worry about it. You can put it away. You can put it to bed. You can walk in freedom because the good father has come. And he wants to be your father forever and ever and ever. And he is the prince of peace. He will give you peace that passes understanding in the trials and tribulations of this life. And he will bring you into an eternal dwelling place with him where peace will reign, where the prince of peace will reign. You see, in verse 6, it says, to us, a child is born. That, that child being born speaks to his humanity. Then it says this, to us, a son is given. The son given speaks to his divinity. He is the son of the father. He is the only begotten of the father he's the pre-existent one the one that he sent because he so loved us he would send his son to die on the cross for us verse 7 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. It is the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will do this. You see, when the king comes, everything changes. It's about the presence. It's about God showing up. It's about God manifesting himself in the presence of his people. God's design has always been and will always be to dwell with his people. The whole act of Christ and reconciliation and redemption is to bring us back into relationships so that we can dwell together forever and ever. In his kingdom, hope is realized. See, see we, we can't just push hope out to some future thing. That, 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 hope, uh, that our hope is just what we receive when we die. That it's our salvation kept in heaven, undefiled for us, which is scripture, right? We can't just push hope out to that point. When Jesus came, hope came as a person. Hope, hope was realized. Uh, I'm playing around with this phrase. Hope that, never, hope that is never realized is fantasy. When you hope, you hope for an outcome. You hope for something to happen. You hope for a final decision, right? You hope for a prognosis. Uh, there, there is a specific outcome that you expect. And if, you never get, if that never comes, it was just wishful thinking, right? And so when Jesus Christ came, hope came. Hope invaded. And so what did we see when Jesus walked this earth? We see miracles. We see people being raised from the dead. We see people being healed. Why? Because when the king comes, everything changes. Everything's okay. His presence changes everything. That's why this church is centered, grounded, founded on the presence of Jesus Christ in our midst through the person and power and work of the Holy Spirit showing up every Sunday so that we're not following the, the, the words and the wisdom of man, but that we're being transformed from glory to glory by the God of the universe. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And it's real. And it's real. And it's real. This is good news. You know what the word gospel means? Good news. It means good news. Jesus understood the reality of how the kingdom of God would, would turn hope into reality, changing lives of his people for good. Uh, Jesus said to the crowds following him in Luke, the, the crowds were astonished. They'd been enjoying his presence and his miracles and his healings. And Jesus was about to get in the boat and move on to the next town. And the people said, no, don't go to the next town. And in Luke 4, verse 43, Jesus says this. Do you have that, Henny? You so good. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. And look at this phrase, for I was sent for this purpose. This is me pausing in awkward silence. I don't know if this is the purpose that, that always gets preached. I, I, I don't know that this is the purpose that we, we focus on. I, I think the purpose that we focus on is that he came to, 
die for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can have salvation. But Jesus Christ, in his own words, in the red letters, says, For I was sent for this purpose. What, what do we do with that? Jesus says the gospel, the good news is the kingdom of God is here. I am here. I will say it over and over today. His presence changes everything. In Matthew 4, 17, we read this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did he mean by that? He meant, I am in your midst. I am not far off. The kingdom is here because the king is here. The presence of the king changes everything. You see, the, the, the primary meaning of both the, the Hebrew and, and the Greek word for kingdom, sure, it, it, it definitely connotes a geographic territory of, 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 of where a king has jurisdiction over. But the primary meaning of both words uh, refers to the active rule and reign of a sovereign. It's more focused on the action, the activity of the king, right? Because somebody can stand up and say they're the king, right? That doesn't mean anything. Jesus could get up and say, I'm the king, come worship me, right? It is the active rule and reign, and having a people that follow you, that determines whether or not you are a king, right? So as, so as Jesus is establishing this idea of, of him being a king and, and that he's ushering in his kingdom, um, he tells his disciples, he commissions his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. He says, as, as you go, you got the heading, Matthew 10? He says, as you go and, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, He's not telling his disciples to go and tell people to trust in Jesus so when they die, they can go to heaven. He's commissioning them to tell the people, I am here. Jesus is here. Hope is here. Messiah, which means the anointed one, the king, is here. Uh, Luke 2, I mean, sorry, Luke 9, uh, verses 2 and verse 6. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and what church? To heal the sick. So they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is radical. This is different from the gospel that I grew up with. He sent them preaching the kingdom of God. So they preached the gospel of the good news of the kingdom. The good news here is not that Jesus had died for their sins. He hadn't died yet. He's talking to them. He is alive. He's saying, he's not, in this passage, he's not saying your hope is found on my death. He's saying your hope is found in my presence and in my person. And that's life changing. Hope was not far off. Hope had been realized. See, and what does he tie directly to the preaching of the kingdom? Healing, hope, deliverance. It's all part and parcel. It's a package deal. It goes hand in hand with preaching the gospel. Healing is available now, church. Life is available now. Miracles are available now. Life transformation is available now. Redemption of wasted years 
is available now. Hallelujah. Reconciliation of family members is available now. Fruitful ministry is available now. See, when we reduce the good news to a gift that is only received upon death, it pushes hope forward to a point where we miss out on hope realized in this life, in the here, in the now. And, and our church is dying from it. It's plaguing our church. Luke 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were in force until John. That's John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urged to enter into it. So in Christ, in King Jesus, hope is realized in the present and anticipated in the future. See, we've got the, we've got the anticipated in the future down, right? But, but what, what that does, when, when we only focus on Christ as our hope in the future, it allows us to focus on building our kingdoms now. I've got then fixed. I've got then in my back pocket. So I can focus on me now. And that is killing our witness. We're supposed to be transferred from darkness to light. We can't be people that live in the shadows. <laughs> we, can't, we can't be people that live in the gray areas. We have to be markedly different. And we're not setting ourselves apart. So why do we struggle to, to, to fully embrace this, this kingdom concept and, and following the king? Because I would venture to say that, that for most of us, one of the rarest ways we relate to Jesus is as king. Is that fair? Is that fair? We, we definitely know how to relate to him as savior, right? So savior, most of us in this room have down pat. We sin, he forgives. Thank you, Jesus, for being my savior. Our, our interaction with, G, with Jesus as Savior is seeking forgiveness. And, and, and of course, at our salvation, we confess Jesus as Lord, right? But, but really, it's as, we, as we dive into God's word, as we seek his voice in prayer and, and, and learn that we can trust him in obedience and that his commands are for our good, that we really begin to submit to him as Lord, right? And so, and so many of us have, have moved from only relating to Jesus as Savior to, to relating to him as Lord, right? And, and, and that's good. That's, that's part of this process uh, of sanctification. Um, and relating to, I want to say this, I don't want to be kicked out as a heretic, right? Relating to Christ as Savior and Lord is essential. Amen? Yes. Hear what I'm saying this morning. Christ says we must be born again. <laughs> but relating to Christ as Savior and, and Lord, it, it's essential, but it's also elemental, it's, it's also just foundational, right? Christ died and rose again to purchase a people, to reconcile a people to God. Listen to this. The reconciliation and renewal of covenant relationship between God and man through the victory of Jesus Christ is the solid rock upon which he will build his kingdom. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3 that unless a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. The reward of being born again is the kingdom of God. Even in this passage often used to lead people in salvation, Jesus says the reward, the hope found in salvation is living in the kingdom of God. So let me ask you a question this morning. 
If Jesus' primary role and purpose was to preach the good news of the kingdom, and he told his disciples to do the same, then why do we often struggle to relate to Jesus as king? Because to declare Jesus as king means that we are not. There is only, amen, amen. There is only room for one on the throne of our lives. If Jesus is king of your life, you are not. Jesus illustrates this very concept when he says, you cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. It doesn't work like that. There is room for one on the seat of the throne of your life. God's calling us this morning to understand him as king, submit to him as king, and most importantly, join him in his kingdom building program. You see, in salvation, which again is key, the old man dies. The old is gone. The new is come. And in 1 Peter, he says, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness, right? We have been fully equipped to usher in the kingdom of God. When Christ came, Christ inaugurated the kingdom. When Christ returns again, he will fully consummate the kingdom. He will establish it on earth as it is in heavens. We will dwell with him in the new heavens, in the new earth. As the, as the new Jerusalem descends onto Mount Zion, and we will live with him forever and ever in perfect peace. But until that day comes, we're called to join him in his work. We're called to join him in his kingdom-building activities. So, so the, 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 first, the first hurdle in all of this is, is getting over the fact that we cannot be king of our own lives. But here's the second part of the struggle. The kingdom that Jesus brought wasn't the kingdom that the Israelites, that, that the Jews wanted. It wasn't the kingdom, the, the, the style of kingdom, the result of the kingdom that the Jews expected. It was very unpopular. But, and, and we're really quick to like point that out about the Israelites. They wanted a king, but they wanted a king coming on a conquering horse. They wanted to overthrow Rome. They wanted to bring back the king and all this stuff. And we, we're, we're, we're ready and willing to say that about Israel. But the fact of the matter is that the type of kingdom that God wants to build on this earth is full of people that aren't sitting in this room. And that's got to change. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax booth. Follow me, he said to them. So he got up and followed him. And Jesus was having a meal in Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, Those who are healthy don't need a physician. But those who are sick do. Go learn what this saying means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the kingdom of heaven is an upside-down kingdom. It's not full, full of the pretty and the polished and the have-it-all-togethers. 
And over the, I don't know, five or six months that I've been this pastor, you know what I've realized about our body? None of us have it all together. You people have proven that more than any people I know. Just kidding. Just, hey, amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He called, he called to save the sick. He called to save the hurting. He called to save the lost. He's the great physician. And it's not just for a future hope. It changes the gospel that we preach. It changes the good news that we declare to those who are lost and dying in their sins. Yes, you will have salvation for all of eternity. But God will invade your life now. God will change your life now. God will work and move in your business now, in your finances now, in your family now, in your, uh, in your marital relationship now, in your relationship with your children now. That hope is available now because Jesus has come. And even though he's ascended, what did he leave us? He left, him, he left us himself in the person and work and power of Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, resting upon you so that you can go and do greater things than I, says Jesus. It's a high calling. It's a, it's a beautiful invitation. And, and he's calling our church to be a part of this kingdom. God's word says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. You know, what, you know what, uh, what he ended up with when he had that field? He ended up broke. It wasn't an investment. He didn't buy low and sell high. He gave everything he had to buy a field to obtain a treasure. A treasure that the world did not see as treasure. A treasure that the world did not value but it was worth giving up everything for that field and being broke at the end of it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it he ended up broke he ended up with one thing in this life and it was a pearl but that pearl was worth it hmm. there's a cost we have to count the cost And so we have a job to do because the, the kingdom of heaven is like a husband and a wife. A wife who loves the Lord so much and loves her family to death that she stands by her husband as he struggles with alcohol and gets on her knees and prays for him day and night and listens to the I'm better and oh, I slipped up again and stays faithful because she loves him. And the kingdom of heaven is like a husband 
who was lost, who was drowning, who God pulled up from the pit and took off the shackles of sin and raised to newness of life and renewed and restored his life to where he could be effective in ministry for the kingdom of heaven right now. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a, a family that, that, that puts aside the, the idealized core nuclear family of the West and says there are souls out there who need the Lord, children who the Lord is calling. And the kingdom of heaven is like the, the oldest daughter who, who shares her parents with those who need a parent. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a, a saint in the church who has spent her life with the Lord. And the Lord calls her into a season of pouring that back out like mama ward onto a, onto a group of women who will take the gospel of the kingdom to the next generation. The kingdom of heaven is like a, a woman who has served the Lord her whole life. And he brings her to the point where she just wants him and only him. And so he begins to strip away every ounce and aspect of religion. And then thrusts her into global ministry, preaching salvation in the kingdom of God to Pakistan and India through Zoom. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. kingdom of heaven is like a craftsman who commits the work of his hands to the Lord and every piece of furniture he looks at he praises the Lord for the gift that he's given him and he's seen God's faithfulness throughout his whole life he's seen God's faithfulness in the hospital and he glorifies him with every ounce of his being that's what the kingdom of heaven is like the kingdom of heaven it's like a church where everybody surrenders wholly to the king, where everybody seeks out their kingdom assignment. And like Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Greg, the kingdom of heaven is like a businessman who hands over with open hands every single dime that he has, every single business relationship that he has, and allows the Lord to bring him into a season of kingdom assignment and kingdom purpose and, 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 a, and a unification of your family and an establishment of your family that will speak of the kingdom, uh, the gospel of the kingdom from generation to generation. Kingdom of heaven is all these mamas in the room deciding to raise their babies differently knowing that they will grow up in a world that is dark and sliding into depravity but they will raise their, their kids to be salt and light the kingdom of heaven is like a church that says enough less of me and more of 